Hey listeners, today is election day in the U.S., so we wanted to offer some fulfilling and relaxing activities to pair with your vote. Chelsea, how did you vote this year, and what are you pairing with waiting for results to come in? I did early in-person voting. My community here is pretty small, and so I didn't have any lines to wait in, and they were sanitizing the voting booths in between everyone. It was It felt very safe, and I was glad to be able to vote in person that way. And I am pairing some phone banking with waiting for the results to come in. I've signed up for some shifts all the way leading up to the the very last minute on election day. I think it's going to feel good to be taking action instead of just sitting and waiting and trying not to focus on it. Totally. I feel very lucky that Colorado is an all mail-in ballot state. So if you're a registered voter, you don't even have to request it. Your ballot comes right to you. You can fill it out and mail it back in or drop it in a drop box. We dropped it in a drop box. It just feels like more of a guarantee and then got the email that our votes were counted. And so it's just a great system that I am so incredibly grateful for, especially this year. And we've been doing more of the text banking in this introvert household, but we'll be doing that today. And also just texting friends and family to make sure they've gone out and voted as well. If you're listening to this on election day and you haven't voted yet, we hope that you're listening to this while standing in line. It's not too late and we're with you. We're here, we're waiting with you, and we're just sending all of the comforting thoughts your way, whatever you need. We're glad to be part of what's keeping you relaxed on this very important election day. podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea! Hi, Sarah. How's it going today? It's going well. I texted you before this to tell you that I would pour a glass of wine before recording because we're recording a little later than usual. (laughs) And it feels really appropriate for talking about a spooky and creepy mystery novel to just sip a glass of red wine while we chat. Oh, I agree. This one's going to be really fun. Yeah, I told you it was maybe a little on the early side here, but it's Friday (laughs) and I didn't want you to drink alone, so... I also have a glass of wine, and I am super excited to talk about And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Listeners, we hope you'll pour yourself a glass of wine for this one, too. Absolutely. Even if it's 10 a.m. We're in a pandemic. We support support it all. All right. Well, before we even get into a summary of this, I'm just dying to know if you had read this book before, what your previous experience with Agatha Christie is. Uh, I've read a couple of Agatha Christie books. I had not read this one. 
but I have read a lot of books that either reference it or resemble it. And so I pretty much knew what it was about and I kind of knew what was going to happen just because I had, I, I mean, I had previous experience with it. I just hadn't read it before. So it made for an interesting reading experience to have all of those connections in my mind while reading, but never have actually read the book. So it felt like I had read it already, <laughs> if that makes sense. What yeah. about you? It's so influential. And and you're a pretty big mystery reader in your, you know, for fun reading life, right? Yeah, I love reading mystery. But I have to say, I don't super love reading Agatha Christie. Like, I admire her and I like her books, but I'm I'm not like a big Agatha Christie fan. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I really wasn't sure <laughs> your uh, affinity for her. Um, so this was my first time reading and then there were none as well. I The only other Agatha Christie I've read is Murder on the Orient Express. And I, I read that a couple of years ago, mostly because, you know, if you're a book person or an English major, there are just those authors you feel like, well, I should at least sample their work and know what it's about so yeah I read I read Murder on the Orient Express and I also knew I think mostly the ending of this one I I don't again I don't know if that's just osmosis I know isn't it weird yeah (laughs) (laughs) because I don't read a lot of mysteries and I really didn't enjoy reading this book I mean again I, I do admire Christy I think like you said and We'll get into the specifics of of that, but I know this one's beloved, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about it in detail and give Agatha Christie her props. But yeah, I have to say it wasn't like my most pleasurable reading experience either. All right, well, let's just share a little bit about what this book is about. And then there were none. Agatha Christie's best-selling mystery takes place in the 1930s when eight guests arrive at a mysterious island and each one is invited by a different person for a different purpose. They're all invited by letter and they're all looking at the handwriting being like, this is weird handwriting and I don't know this person, but I'm going to go anyway. (laughs) Sounds legit. (laughs) And then one by one, The guests and two island caretakers end up dead, and it's clear that someone on the island has a motive for murder. With twists and turns and a surprising ending, this complicated mystery novel is considered one of the best in the genre. Names and nursery rhymes play a big role in unlocking the clues in this book. It's creepy, complex, and it serves as inspiration for many mystery writers today. We will talk about the ending in this episode, but we'll give plenty of warning for spoilers. Feel free to skip ahead to the pairings if you want to be extra careful before you read, or if you love mysteries, but you know Agatha Christie isn't for you, just listen to the spoilers and be like us where you feel like somehow you know about the book, even though you haven't (laughs) read it yet. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say too, like there's something kind of fun about knowing how a mystery ends. And, And I didn't know exactly how this one ended I just I I knew generally and then trying to kind of find the clues that she was leaving along the way so if you like reading mysteries like that of course you know listen to all of our spoilers but we will be careful especially at the early part of our conversation and give plenty of warning when we get to the end definitely one thing that I 
wanted to chat about before we even really get into the meat of this book is I think it's a important to talk about the original UK title of this book and just in general maybe some of the issues with race in Agatha Christie. So if you aren't familiar with this, you can hop on Google, look into the original title of And Then There Were None, um, but it has a horrible racial slur in it. And the book throughout used that racial slur as the name of the island in the nursery rhyme that becomes prominent in the plot of the book and the murders. And that was hard for knowing that it was hard for me to like mm-hmm. disconnect from mm-hmm. some of the racial implications she seemed to be getting at in this book. Did you struggle with that too? I did. And so that is the original UK name and then they renamed it and it was problematic again. Yes. So they changed it again. Yes. There were there were some really problematic passages in it too which I'm sure I was even more on the lookout for because I did have the history of the title in mind. But right away when we're introduced to the characters, there are some really terrible anti-Semitic comments. And then one of the characters murdered several South Africans. And the way that the people are talked about is really just... It just gave me an icky feeling. And it wasn't from the mystery. It was from all the racism. Yeah. And I mean, I think this book suffers from what a lot of British novels suffer from, which is this, this, (laughs) a lot of classic British novels suffer from this idea that to be British is to have, I I don't know, like be a superior type of human. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that like this book takes place on an island that I mean is still in the UK but it's like she's distancing and and saying once these Brits go to this island like they start not that these were good people to begin with but they start losing it and and their civility kind of corrupts mm-hmm. and I just like I think that's what she's really intentionally doing in many ways like even thinking about murder on the orient express like has that same sort of quality that makes me feel a little uncomfortable as a reader yeah the the othering is really strong and knowing that original uk title and the reason why it was titled that was to produce that sense of otherness and the I mean, for lack of a better word, this would have been, this would have been the goal at the time was to create something exotic. Yeah. Um, and like the dark unknown. Yeah. Very much like very Joseph Conrad, yes. Art of Darkness-ish. Yeah. Othering and like mm-hmm. fear of, of the unknown and uncertainty, but also fascination with the quote unquote exotic. And that definitely popped up in, in this book. I think because of the prominence of the nursery rhyme and how it ties into the plot of this book, that was harder to let go of for me. I think that's exactly right. It just, it's so present 
And I, I was going to ask you what about it, since since we're going there anyway, we might as well talk about the stuff we didn't like, and then we'll get to the stuff that we did like or that we're excited about with Agatha Christie. So let's get our didn't like stuff out of the way, because I didn't super love this book either. But I, I'm curious to dig deeper into more of why why this didn't work for you as a reader and what you didn't really like about the reading experience. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it for me was primarily... I want a character-driven novel more than a plot-driven one. The characters in here weren't compelling to me. Like, they all had secrets, and figuring out their secrets was part of the game. It felt like a game. And and it's not that I don't read mysteries ever, but I prefer mysteries, I think, that are more grounded in reality. Like, the premise of this is just so outlandish purposefully like that I, I and I like it's not like she doesn't know what she's doing she's creating this very high-minded conceptual mystery and I think for me that's just not as interesting as a mystery that's grounded in real life and maybe looks at like real justice issues or and uh, yeah I, I maybe don't know enough about Agatha Christie and maybe she is dealing with more issues contemporary to her time and all of that, and I'm just not picking up on them. But yeah, the high concept mystery to me was a little bit hard to get into. How, how about you? You said you couldn't really get into this one either. Yeah, it's pretty similar. And I do love mystery novels. I got hooked on reading through Nancy Drew and other mysteries growing up. And mystery has always been a part of my reading life. Over the last few years, especially, I've been more drawn to the atmospheric mysteries that really have a strong sense of place and setting and the mysteries that have a really strong central detective figure Mm. like Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke or even the Veronica Speedwell series the Lady Sherlock mysteries, where that central detective figure is someone that you are connected to and rooting for, and their character journey is almost more important to you than the mystery. Like when the mystery is a little bit secondary. Or mysteries that have some more uh, literary fiction elements. Like I said, that atmosphere building, some really stellar writing like Tana French. So that's where my mystery taste is now. But even in, you know, middle school, when I was just devouring any kind of mysteries because I loved finding out what was going to happen next, Agatha Christie didn't really appeal to me the way she did to some of my other reader friends. Hmm. I think she's really dialogue heavy. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of background information from the characters talking to each other. And when there are 10 characters to keep track of, it just gets muddied. And there wasn't a consistent voice to follow. And I just didn't find it very entertaining yeah. to read. There wasn't there wasn't any like sassy humor or wit to break it up at all. There wasn't any personality behind any of these characters. They all just seemed like stock figures, like cardboard cutouts to me. Totally. I felt exactly the same way. And I hadn't really thought about the dialogue heavy piece, but I think that's a really good observation and something I hadn't thought about just in terms of my own reading and what I like or what I don't. But now I'm going to be paying attention to that element too. I think her books make amazing plays 
and screenplays. I think that they work super well as visual entertainment pieces. So uh, I'm thinking of The Mousetrap, I think, was turned into a play. I've seen a couple of play adaptations of Christie's work, and I tend to really enjoy them in the theater. Hmm. And I think there's something about the dialogue and a really great scriptwriter who can infuse personality in and make that locked room mystery really fun when you're watching it happen in front of you. And there, there's that element of you know something that the characters on stage don't know. And I, like, I think there is a TV adaptation of And Then There Were None. I haven't watched it. But there's the Murder on the Orient Express movie. They're doing, um, they're doing another one soon. Death on Murder the Nile. On... Yeah. Yeah. And so... I do think that her books can really lend themselves well to adaptation and I, I really admire her brain for coming up with this stuff. Yeah. But it's not very much fun for me to read. Yeah. It just isn't. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I would be much more interested in seeing, I haven't seen any of the adaptations of her work, but I would this reading experience made me more interested in in seeing something like that. It wasn't off-putting in that sense. I I completely agree that I admire her brain and like I think her writing is pretty great and mm-hmm. impressively modern. Like as I'm reading I'm thinking this feels much more than books like The Great Gatsby or you know, whatever other literary works were written around the same time as Christie, it feels like our contemporary literary landscape has been much more shaped by her than many other classic writers. Even writers mm. who aren't writing mystery, just the way the plot moves, the strategies she uses to keep you reading, all of that just feels so modern, which was really fun to see. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think very few authors get that crossover of being super popular and esteemed. Yeah. She's really held in literary esteem and considered one of the greatest writers of all time. This is one of the best-selling crime novels of all time to this day. I think it might be the best-selling one around the globe, which is just incredible to think about. And her writing was really popular at the time that she was writing, too. Yeah. And I think it's pretty rare to get authors like that that are so super popular and also really highly esteemed in the literary community. Yeah, I think that's really cool, too. I, The back of my book says this, and I, I know I'd heard this before, but was reminded of it by the jacket copy that Agatha Christie is only outsold worldwide by Shakespeare and the Bible. Otherwise, she's the best-selling author of all time, which is so cool. And I mean, I, I think also we have a lot of women writing crime fiction and detective fiction and mysteries now, but that she was a woman writing then and very much the queen of the genre is very cool. Yeah, she paved the way for a lot of women writers today, which is pretty badass. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to pick up any more (laughs) of her books, but 
she does seem quite observant about human nature and the way people lie to themselves and lie to each other. And I think because I I noticed how observant she was, I wanted a little bit more of that, like maybe from a narrator's voice, like you were saying, like a stronger narrative voice. But yeah, she she was a brilliant lady, clearly. Yeah, and we we owe so much to her in terms of she she pretty much invented plot twists and surprise endings. Because I, I, I'm thinking, like, if we think about maybe the Sherlock Holmes mysteries or other detective fiction, we had red herrings, we had kind of similar patterns, but I don't know that we got such shocking twists and surprising pull-the-wool-over-your-eyes situations as we did with Agatha Christie. I think that she really invented a lot. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to me that she was writing squarely in that modernist literary movement where the idea of truth and can you believe what you see was was kind of crumbling and feeling shaky for people living through that time and also writers were playing with that. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that in that kind of philosophical time would come mystery writing with crazy twists and just that sense of, oh, maybe you can't always believe your own eyes or what you think is true is not true. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think that I probably would have enjoyed this book more if I didn't have such a clear concept of where it was going Yeah. when I picked it up. Yeah. And if I wasn't thinking of some other books that I had read that it reminded me of. I think I think the less you know about this book going into it, maybe it's maybe it's better. But I still I can really admire her craft. I I do like a puzzle. I just don't like the puzzle more than I like characters. And so, yeah, I just I really I don't I didn't even need someone to root for in this book. I just needed to know more about these people. Mm-hmm. They were just it was all very surface level, yeah. which is interesting because it's dealing with some really deep themes like what justice even means, guilt and having a guilty conscience. I mean, we're getting into the psychology of these people. We're just not getting the full picture of who they are at all, which I get, is not the point. It's just not the type of mystery that I prefer to read. Yeah, same. I think we should talk briefly, because we've mentioned this term, about locked room mysteries. And then I want to talk a little bit about the ending. So listeners, no spoilers yet. We're going (laughs) to, but we'll warn you when we get there, because as Chelsea said, Maybe this one is better to go in more blind. But how how would you define a locked room mystery? A locked room mystery could literally take place in a locked room where all of the suspects and victims are in the same room together, literally. But that can extend to, of course, in this case, the island where 
all of the people that you need to know and suspect and the people who are suffering from the crimes are in the same place. So every character is under suspicion in a locked room mystery. Um, But I'm thinking of like the woman in cabin 10 by Ruth Ware takes place on a cruise ship. So technically because it's just the ship, that's a locked room mystery as well. So basically all of the suspects and victims are in the same place and it's hard to decipher who's who. What do you think it is about locked room mysteries that readers find so compelling? It's kind of scary, right? Because you don't know who to trust. You don't know who to suspect. And there's definitely, I think, more of a puzzle element Mm -hmm. because whereas with a mystery where maybe you have no idea who did it, you know it has to be one of these characters. Mm -hmm. And so as you're reading, you can constantly try and pick up those clues. And I think it's more, it makes for a more active reading experience in some cases because you get to play the role of detective. Yeah. Yeah. You're ruling out like, no, not this person. Okay, wait, maybe this person. That's, that's very true. I I think that maybe also lends itself to a compelling twist that's both shocking and was right in front of your eyes the whole time, which are the best kinds of twists. I agree. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, because Christy really invented that trope of the genre, and since then people have taken it and made it their own, I think it's fascinating because it's really fun to see how people take it and just do it in a different way every single time. I always I always find it fun when people take a set structure and they put their own spin on it and they do something new and different with it. Yeah, me too. I mean, we like that here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. Since we pair we pair these books that are setting the structures in many cases. <laughs> yeah. It is fun to see. I don't think I've read that many locked room mysteries. So I didn't have a ton that I was looking back on, but still, those conventions are not totally unfamiliar to me. And yeah, I've read so many, not so many, but I've read a handful of thrillers and mysteries looking for that thrill of a good twist. And so it's always fun to see how people set up twists, what they're doing, and, and where that all comes from. All right, should we start to get into spoilers and talk about the shocking plot twist in this book? Yes. Okay, so if you have not read this and you don't want the ending spoiled, jump ahead now to our pairings and that timestamp will be in our show notes. All right, what do you think of the end? (laughs) It is, I mean, it is a great twist. It's super well executed. I can see where someone could read all the way to the end and then go, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. But I knew where it was going. (laughs) So I kind of ruined it for myself. But I did have a lot of fun picking up clues along the way and reading it from that perspective. Because I do think that's kind of fun with mysteries. When you do know where it's going, then you can pay attention to what kind of hints the author is dropping. Yeah. And, you know, okay, this is a little bit of an aside, but maybe that's part of why I've been really much more drawn to the character-focused mysteries, because I have read 
a lot of mysteries over the last 23 years. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I probably was not reading mysteries when I was five, but (laughs) I've read a lot of mysteries at this point and it can be kind of easy for me to figure them out. Yeah. So having a compelling character that I can follow and in some cases root for or at least like be really absorbed and wrapped up in makes it more entertaining for me because even if I've predicted the mystery, I still have something exciting to follow. I still am like concerned about something or I still want to see what happens to this person or these people. Yeah, when I, I mean, there is something fun about knowing where it's going and then being able to pick up the pieces along the way. So... Yeah, it's still, I mean, I still was just quite taken by all of the complex steps that it took to get to that twist, though. Yeah, I I don't think I liked the twist. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I knew, as I said, I knew that the whole thing was like, there was a judge who decided that he wanted to dole out his his own particular form of justice on these people who had all committed murder, but not in a way that could be proven or punished by the the legal system. I knew that. I did sometimes when I'm like, like going in, I was like, so it's the judge, right? The one who is the judge, like must be. Mm-hmm. But there were times when I was like, oh, maybe this other character is secretly also a judge. And so could, so I knew the overall twist but not you know necessarily that it was the judge although like obviously I should have known it was the judge (laughs) but because he keeps his he's referred to as justice yes all the time and he's meeting out justice (laughs) and his last name is wargrave which was just yeah okay this is what I don't like about the twist Chelsea the clues she laid were like word game clues they Mm -hmm. weren't evidence clues it was like the fact that we knew that like one of the char- in the rhyme the word red herring appears or the fact that i mean even the whole un owen where of mm-hmm. course because i read the odyssey i was like oh unknown of course <laughs> <laughs> i i wanted solid evidence clues not wordplay clues because that's what made it feel to me more like i was reading a puzzle instead of Mm -hmm. a story and then (laughs) sorry (laughs) I I have thoughts (laughs) the the like little afterward where we get his confession that's like a a letter that he throws into a bottle he's like a psychopath which like clearly if he's going to be killing all of these people but there were no clues about that aspect of his character in the book And then all of a sudden for him to be penning this note where he's like, I've always been fascinated by death and always knew I would want to commit murder one day. I'm just like, (laughs) okay. Like, (laughs) I could have, if that's the twist that there's this psychopath, you know, carrying out his own form of justice, I would have liked to seen more of that in his character and be able to maybe pick that up in my reading experience. Yeah, I can see that. And it is, I think, there are so many different types of mysteries. And this is a puzzle. And it would be a very different reading experience if it was a 
police procedural Mm -hmm. where maybe you are getting the perspective of one of the investigators after the fact and they were putting together the pieces of the crime scene or it would be different if it were a thriller where we knew who the killer was the entire time and we were just anxiously watching him pick people off one by one by one until it was the last person who had to fight you know Mm -hmm. uh those are different shades of mystery that you know, maybe are just closer to our reading taste or the reading experience that we want with mystery. But I I think that's part of the beauty of the genre. And that's something that's fun about Agatha Christie novels because her books are not all the same. Yeah. I think I do like the Poirot books or Miss Marple a little bit more because you do get that detective who has a personality that you can kind of follow. Yeah, I was expecting Poirot to show up on the island <laughs> yeah <laughs> i thought all of our books had him as a detective so i was like when's he getting here and then yeah. when we got to scotland yard and he still wasn't there just, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> and i i also want to say like i'm bad at puzzles and that's and that's one of the reasons i don't like them and so i can fully admit that part of it is just my brain is not set up to solve these kinds of puzzles and so i don't really enjoy it Mm-hmm. I also wonder if I would have liked this better if I hadn't read it now. Maybe if I had read it last year, like I was in the mood for just like a page-turning puzzle mystery, but it is really hard to focus on books right now. So I either need books that aren't making me do a lot of work, like where I'm not trying to figure out what's happening, or I need books that are pulling me in and engaging me so much that I don't mind letting my brain go there. Mm-hmm. So basically what I'm saying is if it's not romance and it's not literary fiction, I'm not having it these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's just where my reading life is at right now. And that's, that is okay. So I do wonder if I would have liked it more if I had read it at a different time when my brain was working a little bit better. Well, and that's so interesting because with a mystery, it's kind of like you get one shot at reading it at the right time. And if mm-hmm. you if you read it and it wasn't the right time for you, well, now you know the end and it just, it's not maybe going to work to go revisit it when at a time when would be better, which is interesting. I also think that I maybe need to, if I'm interested in picking up more mysteries, need to kind of think about what types of mysteries work for me and specifically seek those out because I I am just not particularly familiar with all the subsets of the mystery genre and so I think for a long time I was just like oh a mystery is a mystery is a mystery and now I'm starting to learn which ones work for me and which ones don't and the the puzzle ones are not not for me. The good news is I don't think that the puzzle like mysteries are super prominent anymore. Yeah. I think that we're getting a lot more character-driven police procedurals where we get to know a detective or we get to know a journalist or someone that we can follow. Or we're getting a lot of domestic suspense and thrillers like Gone Girl. So you don't have to read Christy again. (laughs) (laughs) But I might check out some of the adaptations on the screen because that sounds... That sounds interesting. That sounds fun. Agreed. And I, my mind is running through so many different mysteries 
that are Christy-esque that I really enjoyed. So I can sense a blog post coming for sure. Ooh, that is a great idea. All right, Sarah, before we give our pairings for And Then There Were None, let's talk a little bit about Libro FM because it is the holiday season and I am thinking that quite a few people in my life are getting Libro FM subscriptions this year for Christmas. Yes, they don't rely on shipping, which is great. You can send them straight to somebody's inbox or print out a little confirmation to put in a cute card. I love that. And I'm finding that more and more of my friends and family are turning to audiobooks for coziness and comfort and walks outside. So Libro FM is going to make the perfect gift this holiday season. I agree. I also love recommending audiobooks to people. Just as much as I like recommending any other kind of book, but I love when I can share a really great narrator. So I am about to start listening to She Come By It Natural by Sarah Smarsh, which is the Dolly Parton book that we mentioned in our fall preview episode. And I'm really excited to listen to that. I have a Jacqueline Woodson book downloaded, Before the Ever After. And I just love that because of Libro FM, I always have great books queued up to listen to next. What are you listening to right now? I'm listening to The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson. And one of the things I love about audiobooks is I feel more free to try genres I wouldn't otherwise when I'm listening because it's less of a time commitment. So this is a sci-fi novel and it's got a lot of fascinating social justice themes in it and I am just loving it. That sounds so good. Well, if you would like to sign up for Libro FM audiobooks today or give the gift of a membership to a loved one this upcoming holiday season, we have the info for you. Listeners of Novel Pairings can get two audiobook credits for the price of one, or you can use our affiliate links in the show notes to purchase gift memberships for fellow bookworms. So you can go to Libro FM and enter our promo code novel pairings, or you can go to the links in our show notes and give either yourself or your beloved bookworm or everybody the gift of audiobooks this holiday season. All right, Chelsea, you read more mysteries than I do. I'm super excited to hear your pairings. What is your first book that you're pairing with? And then there were none. It was hard to narrow it down to three, especially because I don't know the next time that we're going to read a mystery for the podcast. Oh, yeah. You do need to write a blog post because it was hard (laughs) for me to come up with three. (laughs) But the first one that I would like to pair is very much and then there were none inspired, but there are enough twists and turns that if you read and then there were none, you You'll recognize the pattern and you'll recognize where the story is going, but you might not necessarily exactly guess the ending. So this is The Guest List by Lucy Foley, and there is a wedding on an island off the coast of Ireland. So I really like that setup. And all of the guests go to the island to celebrate the wedding. The groom is this handsome, charming TV star and the bride is an ambitious publisher. So it's like a big 
celebrity deal this wedding. And part of the appeal about the island is that people can't necessarily have their cell phones out documenting this entire thing. It's like private and secluded, but this wedding is very strictly planned. But the plans go to crap. (laughs) (laughs) And bad stuff happens. Someone ends up dead. And so you are left guessing who is wishing harm on people at this wedding and uh, what's what's happening exactly. So I listened to this actually on audio on a road trip with my mom. <laughs> and so it was kind of fun to listen to it with her because we were able to kind of go back and forth and guess what was going to happen and kind of anticipate. So that was a really fun reading experience. I, this is not like my favorite mystery of all time. It made for a fun read on a road trip, but I do have friends who loved, loved this mystery. Mm. And it's definitely, it's very Agatha Christie inspired, but I think that it's got more of a thriller feel to it. And I did definitely like the atmosphere and the setting of an island off the coast of Ireland was really fun and dreamy to think about a wedding in that setting so it was great it was like very Christie-ish there's a puzzle to it it was fun to read but there are definitely some more thriller elements that kept me interested in what was going to happen so that's the guest list by Lucy Foley so have you read The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley I started it and I gave up okay me too (laughs) so I I that one appealed to me more, I think, because I have been to Scotland and I love Scotland and like, I don't know, hunting party just sounded more mm-hmm. escapist to me. But yeah, I started reading it. And as soon as she described the hunting lodge and how people expected it to be this crumbling old castle, but instead it was this gleaming modern glass building, I was like, I'm out. I was <laughs> in it for the castle. <laughs> so Yeah. Atmosphere is so important for a mystery. It's really important. Yeah, I I completely agree. All right, what is your first pairing, Sarah? Mine is The Truants by Kate Weinberg. And this came out earlier this year. And all over the cover, it's like talks about how it's inspired by Agatha Christie and Agatha Christie would be proud and, and all of this. And it's very influenced by Christie. It's very much for Agatha Christie fans. But you should know going in, this is not a mystery and it's not a thriller. And I think a lot of people were disappointed because you put Agatha Christie's name all over your book and people are obviously going to expect a mystery. So just to be clear, not a mystery. This book is a campus novel, actually, and it's about a young girl, a freshman in college. It's set in the UK. Her name is Jess Walker. And in high school, she has fallen in love with this book called The Truants. And she chooses to attend a university where the book's author, and her name is Lorna, where she teaches because she really wants to study under Lorna. And there are a lot of familiar mystery-ish and campus novel tropes in here, like Jess's roommate Georgie is beautiful and spontaneous and wild, and there's a mysterious 
guy named Alec who both Jess and Georgie are charmed by and kind of fall for. There's the steady, reliable boyfriend. There's just all these tropes. And of course, there is the professor who is very charismatic and maybe crosses the line of what is appropriate with her students. But what I loved in this book and why it's so good for Christie fans is Jess takes a seminar about mystery novels. And they, in particular, are studying Agatha Christie in this class. And I loved the seminar scenes. There's just a lot of questions and discussion in those scenes about genre and the mystery genre and how we, we meaning like people who study literature can be kind of snobbish about genre fiction versus literary fiction. And the book talks a lot about Christie's life, and I learned a little bit about her biography in that, which was really fun. There are definitely some kind of spoilers for Christie books because they discuss Agatha Christie books in this seminar. Nothing specific comes to mind, but I do kind of remember that throughout. This book, it's not my favorite campus novel, but it just feels like a love letter to Agatha Christie and The Secret History, which are two books that people really love, but it's also very different from Christie and very different from Donna Tartt. The book kind of has like a turning point, not kind of a twist, more of just a turning point, and it feels almost like two different books with two different tones. I was browsing Goodreads reviews before recording, and it seems like everyone has an opinion about which half of the book they preferred. Some people love the first half and hate the second half. And of course, there are people who like loved the second half, but felt like the first half was a slog. I think I like the first half better. My opinion isn't as strong as some other readers, but this is just, it's a, it would be a really good book for the fall, I think, because it has kind of some of those campusy gothic tones to it, but it's very much its own thing. So that is The Truants by Kate Weinberg. I think I would love that book. I want you to read it so we can talk about it. I don't know anyone else who's read it. I think I would love it, especially when you, I mean, I was sold right away, but then when you mentioned that it serves as like commentary on how people are snobby about genre fiction versus literary fiction, then I was like, yes, I am all in because that has been a topic that just fascinates me over the last couple of years, really since I started reading more genre fiction in romance. And so I am totally going to pick that one up. Okay, good. Yeah, I will say, I think the commentary on that is fascinating, but this book takes itself a little seriously. So it's not like snarky commentary on that. It's like Uh kind of... snobby in itself yes but still interesting (laughs) but it's I I still I agree I totally love that conversation and I found that part of the book completely compelling all right Chelsea what is your second pairing okay this one is the Decagon House Murders by Yukito Ayatsuji and this one I have not read but it's really high up on my mystery to be read list. This could actually be considered a modern classic because it was published in 1987, Mm. but it has sort of received a little bit of a resurgence because it is part of the Japanese murder mystery tradition of Hankaku murder mysteries. And I might be butchering that pronunciation if we have any Japanese listeners who can help me with that or listeners who speak Japanese. I would love to 
know how to properly pronounce that. But it is spelled so that people can look this up if they want to. The spelling is H-O-N-K-A-K-U. These are also known as orthodox mysteries. And this Japanese mystery genre attempts to replicate the aesthetic of like the golden age Western detective fiction a la Agatha Christie. Very heavily Christie inspired, Sherlock Holmes inspired, where the author really lays out all of the clues for you. And a lot of these are locked room puzzle mysteries. And the goal is that the reader could possibly solve the mystery as they read. So the Decagon House Murders is about seven students and they're part of a mystery club. And they go to an island and they're murdered one by one, just like in And Then There Were None. So it's a locked room mystery. It's very much Christie inspired. And so this island was the site of this really horrendous multiple murder the previous year. So these students are going to this island knowing that it's a murder island. <laughs> like they know. <laughs> and so there's this constant questioning of what do their murders have to do with the previous ones? Is there a connection there? And is there like, is there someone on the loose on this island that we don't know about, which is definitely also asked in, and then there were none. And this Decagon House Murders is considered like the big book of the Japanese murder mystery, the Orthodox tradition. So just like Agatha Christie is considered like super important in the mystery genre, this book is considered really important in terms of these Japanese murder mysteries. And it is translated into English. And I think since that one had some success in its English publishing, more of these have been published. So I have another one to share, but I'll wait until my next pairing to do so. So I have not read this one, but I'm really, really excited to pick up The Decagon House Murders by Yukito Ayatsuji. And yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about these Japanese murder mysteries in translation because they're they're an exciting new form of the genre for me. Well, if there's one that's a modern classic, maybe we will eventually cover it. Maybe. I, I mean, it, I was reading about these before we started recording, and I mean, it very much sounds like the puzzle book that I've just spent much time tell, saying that I really dislike. But I was reading about how the Decagon House book has like footnotes where it kind of winks at the reader and says like, you should be paying attention here kind of thing and maybe really involves the reader. And I do like that kind of metafiction commentary. So I don't know. I'm just really intrigued by that genre. I also think when you're reading a book in translation, you're getting you're getting absorbed in a different culture. And that is a really enjoyable part of the reading experience. So I think that that adds a different layer to it that can be more enjoyable, even if you don't love just the puzzle piece of it. Very good point. All right. What is your next pairing? My next one is Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty. And I know you've read this one too. 
I liked it. Me it's too. bananas. But I think I liked it because it was just bonkers. And I was like, whoa. And very few books make me truly, like, surprised. This book is so bonkers. And I I read it when it first came out. And I was doing a little refreshing of my memory um, before we recorded. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like there's just so much crazy <laughs> stuff that happens. And like you said, it it is polarizing. Many Leanne Moriarty fans hated this book. And I, I feel for them because it's very different from her other books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone was waiting and waiting and waiting for her newest. And then it, this one dropped and people were like, what is this? <laughs> this is so different. But I thought that it had her same snarky sense of humor, which is why I love her other books. I completely agree. So the tone is still like winking at the reader. It's snarky. And all of her books have some are outlandish and ridiculous in their own ways. I think my biggest Leanne Moriarty tip is to listen to them all on audio because Audio just brings out the humor, especially with the narrators, with the great Australian accents. I just, I think that's the way to go with her books. So this very polarizing Leanne Moriarty book, Nine Perfect Strangers, it really is just about nine people who attend a health retreat at a very fancy and luxurious spa and hotel. And all of them are hiding things from the other guests and even from the family members that they came with, but there isn't like a big mystery to solve here. It's really just what is everyone, what is each of these individuals hiding and and who are they really? And so through that, she kind of explores what people are like on vacation and when they leave their real lives behind and can be anyone they want. And then also, who is this person who runs the spa, who cultivates that experience for these people? And she's bananas, for sure. I kind of love the the twist or, yeah, twist on the genre of rather than this being a remote island, like, and then there were none, or Lord of the Flies, or, or something kind of dark and scary already, it's at a luxury spa. And so it should be this just happy, fancy getaway But being trapped and isolated still brings out a lot in all of the people. And so I I thought that was just so fun and smart. Like you don't have to be trapped on an island with no food to start losing it a little bit. You could be trapped at a spa with a crazy activities director and that could do it too. (laughs) I, I really liked the book, but you're so right. I listened to it on audio. I think that probably is a big part of why we enjoyed it because I didn't think it was, I didn't think I was supposed to be taking it too seriously and I didn't and it made me love it more. Yeah. There was a spell when I just binged all of her books and I listened to them all on audio and they just like made me laugh so hard. And yeah, I, I do think that audio is the way to go, particularly with this one, but There are two different narrators I've heard do her books, and they're both fantastic. So, And it's so fun to listen to an Australian accent. It really is. (laughs) I I mean, that's got to have something to do with it. I think so. (laughs) All right. Well, that was Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty. And Chelsea, what is your third pairing? 
Okay, I'm really excited to share this one. And part of the fun of this one is that I picked it up completely randomly. I was at a bookstore, all masked up, there by appointment. They had a 40% off table because it was their end of summer sale. And I found this beautiful paperback mystery. I'm going to hold it up so you can see the cover. Isn't it pretty? Ooh, yes. There's the striking image of a young girl and her back is facing the cover and she's holding this big pink flower and it's just a really striking cover. It's a Japanese mystery in translation that is similar to the orthodox or um, hankaku genre, but it takes it further and it's more literary. So the author of this book, The Aosawa Murders by Riku Onda, Onda is a, I believe, literary fiction writer, but she decided to try her hand at mystery. So this one doesn't exactly follow the conventions of the, uh, of what the Decagon house murders would. It's not, it's not as precise. It's a little bit more, uh, literary and I will say it's a bit open-ended. I need people to read this so we can talk about the ending because (laughs) I'm still like, what happened? (laughs) So, okay. There is this stormy summer day, like really hot and humid and basically like a monsoon. And it's in the 1970s and the Aosawas, they are... This prominent family in their community, they own the local hospital and they have this birthday party. And at the birthday party, a bunch of sodas get delivered and 17 people die because they drink poisoned sodas and like champagne and drinks. So there are clues. There's a cryptic poetic verse that's left at the scene of the crime. There are a couple of people who survived, like there are neighbor kids who ran back and forth, like they were at the party and then they left and then they came back to the party and all of a sudden people were rolling around on the ground dying. And there's a member of the family, um, but she is blind. So she still lives, but the rest of her family and all of the guests at the party died. So this book goes back and forth and it's actually the structure of it and then the narration is really fascinating because it's told there's this presence of an interviewer but you never actually hear them or read their questions so you get chapters that alternate different perspectives so like one of the neighbor kids that ran over to the party she ended up writing a book about the murders as an adult so she's interviewed and then just like various people in relation to these 17 people in this family that died or was murdered it's kind of unclear um the prime suspect of the case the person who delivered the drinks died by suicide and so that throws another wrench into the story and that's not a spoiler that's like that all is right at the beginning that's jacket copy but the the narrative style of this fascinated me and it definitely like you get 
clues and you get a really strong sense of who did it, but it's more about reading to figure out why Hmm. than to figure out who. And it's definitely atmospheric. I felt like I was absorbed in the culture of the, of the small town. And I felt, I, I mean, it was just so completely different from anything that I've ever read. And it, it makes me eager to read more of these Japanese mysteries in translation. But for your reading taste, Sarah, I think that you would really like this one. It sounds so, very intriguing. Yeah, The Aosawa Murders by Riku Anda. Okay. I'm going to add it to my, my maybe list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after, at the, we're recording this mid-October. I'm like 10 days away from being done with my Aspen Words reading. And I have just been fantasizing about all of the genre fiction I'm going to read <laughs> after mm-hmm. I'm done with those. So I will add that to my list. All right. What is your last pairing? Okay, well, this one is on my list of something that I will fun and compelling that maybe I want to read when I'm done reading all of the literary fiction in the world. It is so to be so I haven't read this one yet. It's on my TBR. It is The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. It's a hard name for me to say. So this book, I remember when it came out and I had just read the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, I was just like, do you remember that? <laughs> yes. They came out way too close together. And then there was too also, confusing. yeah, way too confusing. There was also the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna that came out oh, like right around much. the same time. Yeah. And so I think the titles, I was just like, I, I can't even go there. But he has a new book out called Devil in the Dark Water that's been getting a lot of buzz. And so it reminded me of this one and I went back to look it up and it sounds so fun. So I'm just going to read the jacket copy and then say why this sounds so compelling to me. So Aiden Bishop knows the rules. Evelyn Hardcastle will die every day until he can identify her killer and break the cycle. But every time the day begins again, Aiden wakes up in the body of a different guest at Blackheath Manor and some of his hosts are more helpful than others. With a locked room mystery that Agatha Christie would envy, Stuart Turton unfoils a breakneck novel of intrigue and suspense. So, basically, this is sold as like, and then there were none meets Groundhog Day, but set in like a a manor house. (laughs) (laughs) And as I said, I had a hard time with kind of the conceptual mystery element of and then there were none but the reason I like this premise is if the book is already going to be outlandish and not a mystery that is grounded in the real world I want to go all the way into the outlandish and have a character who wakes up in the body of a different guest every day trying to piece together the murder it just sounds so fun and original and it sounds like it's probably quite character driven because of that, like different viewpoints of, of different um, guests at this manor. So I've seen just tons of rave reviews from this one. And it's one of those books where it seems like the people who love it just 
really hold it dear. Like if you if you read and love this book, it becomes something that you want to talk about all the time and that you really love and seek more of in your reading life. So I think this sounds just so fun. I really want to read it before the end of the year. I'd be very curious to hear from listeners who have read it or have read Devil in the Dark Water, which just came out. And let me know if you do think that this one would be up my alley. I've seen completely mixed reviews. I mean, I've seen people love it. I've seen people hate it and give up on it. I've seen people who are like, eh, it was okay. So it's it's varied. So I'm really curious to hear what you think because I haven't read this one yet. Yeah, yeah. I, me too. You, you know, those books that they do have the mixed reviews, but the people who love them are like the biggest cheerleaders in the world for that book. That's how I feel like this one is. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people it's meh. But the people who love it, it's like an obsessive love. And so I'm curious about it. All right. Those are our pairings. Makes me want to go read some mystery. Yeah. I don't know if I do, but. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Maybe eventually. Maybe eventually. (laughs) All right. But before we close out, Chelsea, what is your pick of the week? Okay. We didn't even talk about the best part of Agatha Christie. Have you heard the story of how she just disappeared for like 11 days or something? Yeah, that they talk about that in the truants. That's it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. She just up and disappeared and it's still largely unknown why people speculate that her husband was having an affair and so she like disappeared because of that, but It's fascinating. I will add a couple of links in show notes so that you can read about it and see what the situation is. Because basically she like left in the middle of the night. The police found her car abandoned and it kind of looked like it like went off the road and she was nowhere to be found. And then like 10 days later she pops up and she's like, hey, I'm back. So wild. (laughs) And in between there was all of, of course she was a really popular writer at the time of her disappearance, she's like a, basically like a celebrity. So there was all this speculation in the newspapers about why she disappeared. And it was like this mystery novel in and of itself. So there is a fictionalized version of her disappearance. And it is called The Woman on the Orient Express by Lindsay Jane Ashford. And I listened to it on audio a few years ago. So I don't totally remember this book. I know it was enjoyable at the time and I was really fascinated by this Agatha Christie disappearance. So if that interests you and you want a fictionalized version, or if you just like those fiction, historical fiction books that are based on a real figure, I think that this is a great recommendation. Uh, I, as a bonus, there is a drunk history episode about, (laughs) about her disappearance. So that is also worth watching. I love drunk history. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. I wish there was a drunk literature. Maybe we should start it. <laughs> I know. We we have the wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Paid <laughs> members <we> only. <laughs> Can't let that get out there. <laughs> What's your uh, pick of the week, Sarah? Mine's the movie Clue. I love the movie love Clue. It. I mean... I haven't watched it in a while, but after I watched Knives Out, which is another great pairing for this and another oh, fantastic movie. I'm glad you brought that up because I really should have made that my pick of the week. I loved that movie so much. I love Knives Out so much. It's so fun. We actually recently rewatched it 
and loved it just as much again the second or maybe it was the third time. But it made me want to watch Clue again, which it clearly is, you know, influenced by in many ways. That's the tone of a locked room mystery that I kind of love. Like, it's not like the mystery is unimportant. You still are trying to figure out who and and why and when, like all of those questions. But there's a silliness to it and the just kind of exaggerated affectations of stock characters that I find so fun and compelling. So I I just, I love that, both of those movies so much. So there's two picks of the week, Clue and Knives Out, fun movies for mystery fans, but also to like not take the genre so seriously. I think that Knives Out might be streaming for free on Amazon. It Prime. is. Yes, it is. So that is that is a great movie night. And it's that is a crowd pleaser. Yes. So I think that I saw it over Christmas time last year with family and like pleasing a ton of different people with vastly different movie tastes. That one made everybody happy. It was so good. Yep. I completely agree. Yeah. It, there's something for everyone in that. It's so fun. Well, readers, we cannot wait to hear what you think of And Then There Were None. I know we we already got messages, Sarah, about how excited people were because this is like one of their favorite books. So I'm really, (laughs) um, I'm sorry we didn't love it. Oh, no. (laughs) But we're we're eager to hear why you love it. And we adore Agatha Christie regardless. So we're excited to hear your thoughts about, about her and mystery novels. And if you are loving novel pairings, in spite of our reading taste. <laughs> a great way to support the show is to share novel pairings in your Instagram stories. You can tell that we've been drinking wine this episode. Now we're giggly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> share novel pairings in your Instagram stories to let your friends know you're listening. And while you're there, make sure you're following us on Instagram at novel pairings pod for news and announcements and book recommendations, and giveaways. We would love to know whether you pick up any of the pairings that we mentioned today and how to pronounce some of these Japanese words, please. And please keep spreading the word about the Novel Pairings podcast by texting your friends a link to an episode that you think that they'll love or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for all of her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an episode full of holiday gift pairings, and I am so excited about that, Chelsea. But until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.